Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. And under the ages of ages, amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon thee, O Heavenly God, as upon a father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. I want to share with you an email I received yesterday from a seminarian who's studying at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary in Nebraska. He says, so far I have listened to the lectures on Napoleon, the ancient and biblical world, the Protestant Revolution, the discussion on Chesterton's Everlasting Man, on Thomas Aquinas, your brother's presentation on apologetics, and a few others that I can't remember at the moment. I have a list of many more that I look forward to listening to as well. The instructors are excellent. The topics are excellent. And even the comments, this is for you guys, and even the comments from those in attendance are frequently excellent. Uh, I am filled with enthusiasm and optimism at your endeavor and can see here a real hope for the return of vibrant Catholic culture. Already I feel like my education here at the seminary has been greatly enhanced just by the few lectures that I have already heard. Everything in them perfectly matches what we are learning. It is like a review session with extra notes to fill in the gaps. I can see the hand of God at work here. God bless you and your work. I keep the ICC in my prayers. Dan Nolan, fifth year seminarian. So if you're wondering where your um, donation dollars are going, they're going to a good cause, I promise you that. Our speaker tonight, Dr. John Cudaback, received a PhD in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. He writes in lectures on various topics, including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. If you haven't read his book, make sure you get a copy. Do we have any copies today? Dr. Cutterback. Next time. Next time. A third-order lay Dominican, he currently teaches uh, in the philosophy department at Christendom College. Dr. Cutterback is an avid gardener and hunter. He lives with his wife and six children in the Shenandoah Valley. Please welcome Dr. John Cutterback. Well, thank you for coming out tonight to, uh, of all things, hear a lecture about music. If you don't have a, of a handout, there are handouts in the back, I'm going to be referring to some quotations that I think you're going to find interesting. 
When my eldest daughter, who is now 16, was two years old, I introduced her to a great piece by Haydn, which is called The Creation. It's a fabulous choral piece. It's about the Genesis accounts or creations. An amazing part at the beginning where it comes to the point where God says, let there be light. has been building and at that next line it says and there was light there is the most amazing unforgettable pulsing vibrant sound that you just you are there when where there had been nothing there was light well, I introduced this to my two-year-old, and I, and I said to her, explained what was going on. I said, I mean, just listen to this. Can't, can't you just hear how this is when God first created something? And this, is, this must have been, in some sense, what it, what it sounded like. So she looked like she was listening, but didn't say very much. And so in any case, I, I went about my business, and she went about her business, and it still was on. And there's a part later in the piece <laughs> where a similar progression, a similar chord progression comes back that sounds somewhat like that part. And I'll never forget, I was, I was going about my business and Magdalena came running into the room as she heard that and said, Daddy, Jesus is creating the light again. <laughs> and I thought, listening to that piece, you could believe. Jesus was creating the light again. Indeed, he never stopped creating the light. Music has a power for good and for evil that I think most of us have not yet comprehended. And that's why I'm glad you're here this evening, and that's why I'm glad that I'm here this evening. One of the great paradoxes of being human, one especially understood by Christians, is being a spirit and being a body. Indeed, I not only have a body, I am a body. A human person is a body, not just a body, but is truly a body. The spiritual life is lived in soul and in body. The moral life is lived in soul and in body. A person is formed, a person is educated in soul and in body. This is the key background for understanding what we're going to talk about tonight. How music 
this fundamentally bodily reality has a profound spiritual role in our life. And the question is, what role is it actually having? I'm going to divide my consideration into three parts. First, I'm going to give a little bit of a philosophical reflection. Then I'm going to give a cultural reflection. Then I'd like to make a few suggestions on the practical level of, given what we've talked about, what might we want to do in view of these truths. The great Greek philosophers considered music an absolutely central part of education. Now here's the thing I'm going to ask you to focus on. When they speak about education, they don't mean simply something that goes on in the classroom. For them, what we translate as education simply means formation of the human person. Consider this. When Plato and Aristotle write on how the human person should be formed, especially beginning when young, how the human person should be formed, a topic that is at the absolute center of their consideration is music. Consider that, if you will, for a moment. Do we have anything like that understanding anymore? That one of the first things you think about when you think about how we're going to form the young. Plato and Aristotle were insistent. You must give central attention to music. For music can be an instrument of amazing good or shocking bad in the formation of character. Character. Now, the interesting thing is, Aristotle also, who goes into this in even more depth than Plato does, although they both talk about it a lot, actually makes a division. Aristotle says that music is very helpful and very important in intellectual formation, something we're not going to speak about tonight, but just a quick little window on that point. He's convinced that the right kind of music can profoundly enhance our understanding of the highest things. You know what comes to my mind right there? Something like the sounds of creation that Haydn puts into that amazing piece. And did my daughter begin in a way that no words I ever could have said to her at that time could have expressed? Does she begin to understand something? Indeed, is it not the same for adults? We'll come back a little later to talk a little bit more about Gregorian chant. But is it not the understanding of the church that Gregorian chant literally enhances our insight into the highest things as we are praying? But that is not particularly our topic. Our topic is what they actually spend more time concerned with, and that is the more moral formation. Intellectual formation and moral formation are both important. The intellectual is the more having strictly to do with knowledge and studies. Moral formation is fundamentally formation of a person's character. That 
is where they say music is most of all doing what it does for everybody on the level of forming their characters. If you'd be so kind as to look at your handout, I'd like to just give you a little sample of what these two, often considered the greatest of philosophers, have said on these points. On your first page there, I'm going to start with a few from Plato. As Damon says, and I am convinced, writes Plato, the musical modes are never changed without change in the most important of a city's laws. Something of an historical claim, I'm going to come back a little bit later and we'll look at could we do a little timeline of the 20th century and look at changes in fundamental aspects of our civilization and how they are precisely paralleled by changes in music. And here Plato said this in the 4th century BC. A little longer, remarkable quotation from the public is the next one. Aren't these the reasons, Glaucon, that education in music and poetry is most important? First, because rhythm and harmony permeate the inner part of the soul more than anything else, affecting it most strongly and bringing it grace. So that if someone is properly educated in music and poetry, it makes him graceful. But if not, then the opposite. Second, because anyone who has been properly educated in music and poetry will sense it acutely when something has been omitted from a thing and when it hasn't been finely crafted or finely made by nature. And since he has the right distastes, he'll praise fine things, be pleased by them, receive them into his soul, and being nurtured by them, become fine and good. He, this one who is rightly formed in music, he'll rightly object to what is shameful, hating it while he's still young and unable to grasp the reason. But having been educated in this way, he will welcome the reason when it comes and recognize it easily because of its kinship with himself. Now, I know there's a lot going on in that quotation, and we're not going to be able to go into it in any full way, but I particularly want to draw your attention to this last point where he's saying music is forming how we feel and how we think, even when we don't know that it is forming how we feel and how we think. And in this case, he's particularly talking about the youth, and I love some people having read this, it just it makes them catch their breath when they have experienced this in their own lives, where he says, he will welcome the reason when it comes and recognize it easily because of its kinship with himself. And let me try to translate that a little bit. What's he saying? The young, if they have been formed by good music, among other things, but in a particular way, by good music. It is forming them so deeply prior to their understanding these things. But then as they grow and they start to then intellectually realize the different things that are going on in life, the different big questions, the different things that are at stake, 
when they hear the truth of some moral aspect of life, they'll say, oh yeah, that's the truth right there, recognizing it as their own, though they had not known that before. I have seen this, ladies and gentlemen, with my own eyes. I've been teaching at the college level now for 19 years. And I've had the pleasure of every now and then, I have had some students where either I already knew or it becomes apparent that they actually have been formed in this kind of way. When it comes to some very important things, I see in their eyes, they just are, oh yes, that's right. Something that's of the first importance. They see. And that's what Plato was claiming there. I go on. He says, imitations practiced from youth. And what he means there is, when you have been experiencing music, which is an imitation of moral states, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But imitations practiced from youth become part of nature and settle into habits of gesture, voice, and thought. Does that bring anything to your mind when you think of people who listen to a certain kind of music consistently? You can see it in their gestures, in their voice, in their thought, how they move their bodies. He's claiming both on the bodily level and on the spiritual level, it has been forming the person and it's, as it were, written all over them. Going on, here's a rather amazing one. Again, we'll come back and talk about later. I'm giving you just a little tour to give you a sense of the panoply of things they see that are so important about music. The man who engages in illicit sexual behavior will be reproached as untrained in music and poetry. To some, it might bring a smirk to their face, but I say this to you, with seriousness and with joy in the age that we live in, that these men have the conviction that bad music encourages sexual license and good music helps form chastity. They are absolutely convinced of it. Next quotation. When lawlessness has established itself there in music and poetry, it flows over, little by little, into character and ways of life. But when children, he goes on, play the right games from the beginning and absorb lawfulness from music, take lawfulness in a very rich sense. I mean, he means that in the deep sense of being in accord with the best and highest of laws. When children have absorbed lawfulness from music and poetry, it follows them in everything and fosters their growth. Now, in this next quotation, Plato is referring to those that, lo and behold, think the following about music. Isn't music just a way we entertain ourselves? Isn't music just something we listen to for fun? 
You've already heard it said that nothing is ever said that wasn't already said by a Greek. Plato is dealing with the same things that you or I would need to deal with. In their mindlessness, says Plato, they involuntarily falsified music itself when they asserted there was no such thing as correct music. How often have we heard such a thing? Dad, this, what do you mean good music versus bad music? Isn't it just what music I like versus what music someone else happens to like? Oh, in their mindlessness, they involuntarily falsified music when they asserted there was no such thing as correct music, and it was quite correct to judge music by the standard of the pleasure it gives to whoever enjoys it, whether he be better or worse. Do you see what, what he's saying right there is, maybe you can judge music by what pleasure it gives, but you'd better look at the character of the person. If the character of the person's a good person, then you know if this music gives him pleasure, all right, then that's a good sign that this is good music. But you don't judge music simply by, does it give pleasure to someone, any old person? Some people are in a position to judge music well. Other people are not. Now I'm going to just skip over to give you one from Aristotle and, uh, and leave it at that. Top of the back side. Regarding the importance of good music, Aristotle says, since virtue consists in rejoicing and loving and hating a right. You need to love the right things and hate the right things. There is clearly nothing which we are so concerned to acquire and cultivate as the power of forming right judgments and of taking delight in good dispositions and noble actions. The context there is, Aristotle is directly asserting, the right music actually forms us to have the right judgments about good and bad in life. The wrong music makes us think that the wrong things are good and that the right things are bad. Right now, you might be tempted to think to yourself one of two things. This sounds too good to be true. Or maybe this sounds too horrible to be true. Is it really that amazing what good music can do? And is it really that bad that bad music can do? Well, I'd like to give you a little bit more of how they would argue for this, and then we'll turn to a cultural reflection and see if we can see anything from, a, from kind of looking around us and take the experiential approach. This is going to be the most philosophical part, though I don't think that this will be too abstruse for you. I'm going to give you two key premises of both Plato and Aristotle's argument that is the support for what we've just been saying. And again, if it's, if it's a little bit too tough, don't sweat it. But I think that you might appreciate this. Here are the two key premises. The first is that music imitates the moral states of person. Right? Music, what it is, is it fundamentally is imitating, as it were, representing human emotions, particularly, or different moral states of the human person. Fear, anger, despair, love, 
These things are literally embodied, expressed in music. Perhaps no great shock there. That's the one key premise. The second premise, then, is the real corker that together with the first shows, ooh, well then, this is serious. And the second premise is this. Music places the listener into the state that it is imitating in some fundamental way. Or in other words, it causes the soul of the listener to, as Aristotle says, move in sympathy with it. What is being imitated then is in some key way being projected into the one listening. There's the second premise. When you put those two things together, what does it mean? If those premises are true, that means that music has the ability to be forming us in a moral kind of way because it is imitating moral states of human beings and then in some way projecting them upon us. There's the argument. Let me give you a couple of examples. Socrates, Plato have some great words where they describe different modes. Socrates says at one point, what about the one that is clearly a martial sound that fits with battle? If you'll forgive me, I am, and I should have told you this, by the way, at the beginning, I'm not a musician, I'm not a singer, except when I'm in the shower in my garden, uh, but I do, at times, do certain imitations just to, just to try to help make the point. So if you'll forgive me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, think of those two premises when I do what I'm about to do, and think, is it possible that music can represent courage? And is that perhaps why militaries have pretty much as long as we know in history, made a point of, even at times in the heat of battle, when men could have had weapons in their hands, they had them over there playing instruments. <laughs> and then picture with the British Imperial Army, you start up that, and then all of a sudden the Scottish bagpipes. <laughs> And, and up and down the line, the men are going... <sighs> and they're thinking of their home, and they're thinking of their children, and there's tingles going up and down their spine because that music is speaking courage into them. What about, and Plato refers to, what about the sounds of a soul in supplication before God? Are there certain sounds that literally present, embody 
this reality. And when done well, project it into us. Those are two, as it were, that have a very positive use. Is there ever, ladies and gentlemen, a place for a music whose rhythm, for instance, is... What is that? (laughs) And honestly, I don't want to talk about what that is. But it is something. And if we don't think it's something, as my father-in-law says, then we don't know what any native knows. Music imitates things, and it moves us along with it. I ask you, do you know any sleazy bar that does not have sleazy music? (laughs) You will never hear which is the beginning of Mozart's clarinet quintet in a bar. (laughs) And you might think, well, okay, but I don't hear it at the swim pool either. Honestly, I say this to you. If you did hear it at a swim pool, you might be surprised, but you wouldn't think, That seems to be contrary to what's going on here. But I say to you in all honesty, put yourself in that sleazy bar and picture Mozart's clarinet quintet coming on. It stands in contradiction to what's going on there. And I give you that the people in there would know that. Just as even if unconsciously, they know that the music they're listening to is enhancing what they're doing. Let's go to the cultural reflection, although we, as it were, have already started to cross that line. I'm convinced that history, particularly in our age, the last hundred years, completely verify what Plato and Aristotle have asserted to us. If we turn to, let's just say, an empirical consideration, make some observation of popular music in our day and age, I honestly think that we will see the dangerous truth that Plato and Aristotle are pointing out. So again, I I preface this by saying what I'm about to say can be challenging, and certain aspects of it are up for discussion. I'm going to try not to speak in absolutes, but the case I want to make to you is that painting with broad strokes, I think you're going to see that what we can say about popular music is pretty bad. So let me get off with just a couple of thoughts. What do people even call this kind of music anymore? In my day, it was just broadly called rock music. 
and I openly going to say this, I don't know that much about the different genres. I honestly don't care to know that much about the different genres. I'm not in a position to give a specific critique of the different ones, and I want to be clear about that. So I'm going to just paint with kind of broad strokes. In general, does it not have what even Plato would have called a sensuous beat? A rhythm that speaks to the lower parts of human nature. I dare say the lower parts of the human body. It is a sensuous beat. This music also, in general, tends to be what I would call manipulative of emotions, then, precisely in the direction of this sensuosity. Does it not tend to put us in a non-reflective, non-contemplative, sensuous state? Is it not just experientially, generally, detrimental to being at peace, being calm, being able to communicate well with other people, being in a humble, receptive state of being towards those around us? Is not, in general, popular music sensuous, distracting, agitated? Nay, I go further. Does it not tend often to be angry, even despairing? And this is before we even think about any of the words that are being said. But then if we do look at the words, is it not most of all sensuous, angry, rebellious? Here's the thing. Many of these, if you may allow me to use the word, rock artists, actually are very talented at what they do. And I dare say, by and large, they actually have understood certain things that Plato holds and Aristotle holds better than we have. They know that their words go with their music. I say to you truly, what makes us think when those words are what go with that music that somehow it's just the words that are bad? One of the main things that Plato and Aristotle are trying to insist on, the music actually has a much more powerful effect than the words do. Together, they make an extremely potent, perversive force. Another point I would point out just from the kind of empirical observation of culture is this. Youth culture today, we don't need to give a critique of it, we in this room know youth culture today is, by and large, perverse. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you had to choose one thing as at the center of youth culture, what would that one thing be? One way that somebody put it to me once always stuck with me. If there's one thing that people, in, as it were, steeped in the youth culture, would absolutely never give up, what would that one thing be? Think of it. What if you made them choose? Well, look, you're going to lose one of the following. The clothes that you wear, 
the movies you see or the music you listen to, which is going to be the lot. Granted, they're going to hold on to the other ones real tight, too. But which is, in a sense, at the center of it? They connaturally feel that. And it often comes through when a song that was popular way back when I was young said, we built this city on rock and roll. They weren't joking, were they? I'd like to suggest that by and large, we have a genre that is bad at its core. And not just bad in its extreme forms. Let me go right to the heart of something and be challenging to you. I speak a bit on music, particularly to, to youth groups. One of the most challenging aspects of it is this. A lot of young people are willing to say something like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that music, which is really bad. They'll come up with, you know, oh, that real kind of head-banging, people-crushing, you know, that one over there. The interesting thing is, everyone's always willing to point at that music that the other people like. Oh yeah, you know, that probably is pretty perverse, isn't it? Not trying to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but we need to be serious about how pervasive it is among all of these forms of popular music with our youth today. Let me turn to something that's a little more encouraging before we go to the practical suggestions. Because, of course, this either destroys or restores the inner man. If you would look at your quotation, I'd like to give you St. Basil the Great, Father of the Church. We're going to go to the opposite extreme. We're going to talk for a moment about liturgical music. Look at this great point from St. Basil. Near the top of the second page. What did the Holy Spirit do when he saw that the human race was not led easily to virtue and that due to our penchant for pleasure, we gave little heed to an upright life? He mixed sweetness of melody and doctrine so that inadvertently we would absorb the benefit of the words through gentleness and ease of hearing. Just as clever physicians frequently smear the cup with honey when giving the fastidious some rather bitter medicine to drink. Thus he, remember, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. He contrived for us these harmonious psalm tunes so that those who are children in actual age as well as those who are young in behavior while appearing only to sing, would in reality be training their souls. So here's a father of the church suggesting God specifically designs, let's just say, this situation, given the amazing soul-body composite that we are, there would be this amazing thing. How do you even explain what music is? How do you even give a definition of what it is? It's, 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 a, it's a kind of elusive reality. But, but there it is, and we all know what we're talking about. That there is music that would speak to the inner person powerfully. But again, here's the beautiful, dramatic thing. 
if the Holy Spirit was able to design it such that music could speak so powerfully for good, then you might say, he can't, as it were, make it so that it can't be abused. It's a little bit like human freedom. If God's going to give us human freedom that can be used so well, well, it can be used so badly. If music is going to have this amazing power and influence in our life because of how it speaks to the inner man, if it is taken up and made to express rather than the order of soul to which we are called, the music is taken to bespeak evil, then will it not be speaking that into us? I give you a very different quotation from that of Basil the Great and that by Little Richard, the second from the bottom of the page. Brace yourself. My true belief about rock and roll and there have been a lot of phrases attributed to me over the years, is this. I believe this kind of music is demonic. A lot of the beats in music today are taken from voodoo, from the voodoo drums. If you study music in rhythms like I have, you'll see that it is true. There are numerous quotations like this. Many, many of the most famous, the most popular, the most appealing saw these things clearly. And we have closed our eyes, it seems to me, as a Christian community. May I throw that challenge at us? Why have we not, as a community, risen up and said, A culture expresses its most fundamental convictions in its music. Music expresses the convictions and it engenders them. And as a community, we have by and large tended to use the music of the culture of death as though it's our own. And I throw this out as a challenge to all of us in our various capacities, what can we do about that? Well, on that level, I'd like to just turn and offer a few practical suggestions. And again, I hope you're saving up your thoughts for a little bit of discussion afterwards. First principle I would say before I give the actual practical suggestions would be this. If we don't make a conscious effort to form our... Now I'm going to also start to talk about children because I think particularly these things are so real, especially in children's lives, and the young people, you know, you remember from either your own life or your own children now, you know how your favorite group, your music is somehow very much tied up with your identity, and particularly with youth. There's something about this music thing, and we need to be aware of that. So what I'm saying is if we and our children, or we for our children, do not make an intentional effort to form good musical habits, one thing I tell you for sure, the culture of death will form them for us. Bad music is all around us. If we don't make a specific effort to do the music thing 
differently in our lives, in our communities, in our celebrations, at our weddings, at our dances, then we're just going to be overrun by the music that is coming straight out of the heart of pop culture. So we have to make it an intentional effort. What might we do? I have another quick prior principle to give you, and that is this. And this shows us how challenging it's going to be. Point about human nature. Bad desires do not need to be cultivated. Good desires do. Similarly, music that appeals to our base desires is often immediately appealing. And that's one of the most dramatically difficult things about this. This music that I'm referring to as bad, when we hear it, it doesn't necessarily strike us as, ooh, that's really dark and ugly, although some is actually shockingly dark and ugly. Others is not. It's actually it's much more subversive in its being immediately very appealing, say, in its sensuosity. So bad desires don't have to be cultivated. Good desires do. Often appreciation of good music is going to have to be cultivated, whereas bad music is very often going to be immediately appealing to us, and that's going to make this much more difficult for us. Defensive and offensive. I quickly divide my suggestions into what will be our defensive moves and what will be our offensive. We need to make a concerted effort to shut out the bad, to realize we don't want to listen to that and to make an effort not to. That can be done in many different ways and sometimes it's not doable. I think and I chuckle, this maybe is not the answer. When I was in high school and I was in a carpool, the other guys drove, I sat in the back and the whole way to school I went like this. I was a little on the hyper side, I have to admit. <laughs> Um, and that didn't win friends and help me influence people, but nonetheless, sometimes we might have to have a little bit of that in our lives. Why? Because one of the best ways to have this music stop appealing to us as much as it does is to, is to turn it off, to have it start to dry up at the root. I'll just give a quick personal testimony. I listened to so much popular music for so many years in my youth, I at this point, I mean, every now and then, just when I'm going through the radio, I come upon something and there's just something just kind of washes over me like, oh my gosh, you know how music is that way, all of a sudden you're back there and it's so moving and it can be so appealing. I don't think anything I ever do is going to make that go away. But at least... I have been able, by the grace of God, somewhat to close it down where it's not constantly coming back to me and trying to draw me in. So we can do much, depending on where we are, to in any case try to shut down the influence that that music has. I know, by the way, a number of parents who only as parents came to realize the importance of music and God bless them thinking of their children they realized we have got to stop listening to what we've been listening to 
Because if we're listening to that, our children are going to start listening to that same thing too. These are the kind of things that we can do on the kind of just stopping. But more important is kind of the offensive. How can we go positive? Well, just a couple of quick kind of obvious suggestions. Listening to good music. It takes an effort. It takes an effort. But cultivating an appreciation of certain of the great masters. There are certain great masters that you can absolutely never go wrong with. Bach and Mozart and Haydn. They're undisputed masters of great music. And they're an amazing gift, I say, from God to us to cultivate our appreciation of real beauty. Here's another one, music lessons. Now, this is particularly, particularly for children. I'm going to throw out at you Suzuki. I don't know how many people have ever been exposed to the Suzuki method. Uh, Shiniki Suzuki was a Japanese man who, after World War II, he was in Germany, and he was walking down the street, and he heard Schubert's Ave Maria coming out of a church. It knocked him off his feet. He went into the church. He had an experience of God as he listened to that song and he became a Catholic. The rest of his life, he devoted, until he was over 100 years old, he devoted to teaching children to play beautiful music. And he produced some of the world's great musicians, but he always said, I am not looking for virtuosos. I am forming beautiful souls by teaching them to make beautiful music. Especially thinking of our children. Teach them to make beautiful music. It has, as Suzuki has shown for decades, other number of people have shown, it makes an amazing difference for them. Good liturgical music. So happy to say this in the presence of the church where 16 and a half years ago I was married to my dear wife. Father was there. Thank you again so much for your generosity. The church on the outside looked a lot different back then. Go to liturgies. Participate in liturgies where the music is fitting for the liturgy. And this forms us I'm convinced one of the main reasons the church has been so insistent, and I have a quotation on here from Vatican II, has been so insistent about what the liturgical music should be like is it wants to form its people's musical habits and tastes first and fundamentally in the liturgy. And then all other music, and there should be other forms, will overflow from them. Then just as the final then practical, a quick trio, because I don't want to leave it as the only good music is liturgical music. I like to say practically there are three areas of music that we should be cultivating. The most important is liturgical music. Then also there's what we can call the high classical music. The great works, again, Mozart, Haydn, and Bach can be a very, very important part of our lives. And then the most tricky, and it's going to take the most work, I think, to do, is good folk music.
There is a place for folk music. There always has been. It's part of how we celebrate life together. And I throw this at you as a challenge. It needs to be worked on. Well, main locus of what comes to my mind of where we can do that, when we celebrate together in something like a wedding. How do we then, as a community, as a people, what kind of music do we have that allows us to express our human joy together? That's an extremely important part of our life. Ladies and gentlemen, in the end, one thing is necessary in life, and that is salvation. And surely as Christians we realize there's a hierarchy of things, and we have to put first things first. Music is not first. And I don't want to make it sound as though it is. At the same time, should we not have a holistic approach where we realize in God's providence different things fit into this great project of the Christian life. And I present for your consideration by God's loving plan, music has a very important part for which we should be grateful and which we should cultivate. I thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback, for an excellent presentation. The handout will be posted on our online learning center. We'll take our usual break of about three or four minutes. Okay, questions? Uh, Dr. Cutterback, uh, you made the point that there's the music and then there are the words. What do you think about the Christian rock thing? All right, well, can I just give you my straight, honest, unvarnished answer? Socrates at one point, Socrates slash Plato, make the point that there's three main parts you can talk about in music. The rhythm, the melody, and then the words. And they say in music that is coherent, they will all fit together. You can have music that is incoherent, and it is obviously incoherent. If one took the melody of Gregorian chant and then put angry words to it, there would be an intrinsic contradiction in the music because the melody is saying one thing and the words are saying another. So you can see where I'm going. In my experience, as a rule, while I do not say that to be condemning of people that I think are often honestly trying to reach people where they are. So I do not say that to in any way be dismissive I just give you an honest response of, I think, in view of the insights of our tradition, that it is a mistake to try to take music that is intrinsically saying something else and put good words to it. I don't condemn the people that try to do it. I think it is misguided. Just a, just a basic question. You talk about Bach, Mozart, the greats, and I'm not including the standard mainstream culture in this, but what about the popular music, say like a lot of great film scores out there which stand on their own regardless of whether you like the film or not, like John Williams, John Barry, Ennio Morricone. I was just wondering what you thought about the popular non-rock music. Right. What do you recommend out there? Right. Good question. I would just say this. We have to be careful in discerning 
it certainly is not the case that nothing good has been made in the last 100 years. I in no way want to apply that. And there are some very beautiful movie scores. In the hierarchy of things, I think it is appropriate to recognize that there is a hierarchy. I don't think that we're going to find that any of those are as great as the greats. I don't say that to be dismissive of them, but I just think it is important to keep in mind that we should always be nudging ourselves towards cultivating an appreciation of, I'll just say, the even greater. But that's not to say that there isn't a real place for enjoying those things that can be just genuinely relaxing, good, good music. I don't have any particular suggestions there because I don't hold myself as having enough familiarity. I appreciate that question. Uh, doctor, did Little Richard ever change his stripes, so to speak, in any of his musical presentations after his realization of the demonic nature of his previous works? I do not know. With a number of these artists, my understanding is that they actually saw it. And I, I decided not to include other ones where they would say things like, I feel like a spirit takes me over while I'm up there performing. And there were several major ones that have things to say like that. But along those lines, there are some great conversion stories. I don't myself know any of the musicians that have been kind of the most famous, but I certainly know even personally some that have been extremely talented in making this kind of music who realized how to conversion and are committed to now helping people as regards that. There are people like that for sure out there. Dr. Cutterback, we have an anonymous writer uh, writing in, which is uh, kind of a basic question, but it would be good to get it, especially on recording. What are the basic elements of good music? What elements should we look for in distinguishing good music other than the lyrics? How shall we put it? I would say this, going back to the basic principle of music imitates moral states. Look for music that is expressing profound, beautiful aspects of human nature. For instance, there's the obvious of music that is very prayerful. But there's also music that expresses the soaring of the soul in other ways than in prayer. For instance, appreciating the beauty of nature can be expressed well in beautiful music. So I would say, look for music that is noble. It's music that is bringing out noble aspects of man. There is a such thing as noble anger. The Dies Irae is a traditional piece that expresses the anger of God. In general, we are training ourselves to recognize the music that is expressions of these different noble aspects. At times, it's hard to know. So I would say this, go with those we can trust. On the liturgical, go with the tradition. The church has been very clear. There's a great Roman tradition. There's a great Byzantine tradition where you can't go wrong. In classical music, you can't go wrong with the greats. Good folk music of the older cultures, the basic polka beat, that can just have an, a fun expression of joy that in general led to good group dancing. Again, you can see that there's a great panoply, but all noble good emotions of man. For those of us that grew up in the 1950s in churches, there was, of course, the Gregorian chant and additionally beautiful music that was done. And it gave you a sense of reverence and all when you entered the church. 
you think it was a fundamental mistake of the American Catholics to adopt the simplistic music that occurred for the past 30 years that created, I feel, a sense of lack of reverence in a church. I think you are under something very important there. I'm convinced a fundamental mistake was made. Who made the mistake, I don't know. But I am in absolute agreement with you, and I think at this point the church itself, Benedict XVI, is working hard in what's called the reform of the reform to make clear to us we were not supposed to lose our inheritance of most of all Gregorian chant. We were not supposed to lose our inheritance of polyphony. There was room for some addition of other things, but that we absolutely made a mistake in dropping the bar way too low, bringing in low forms of folk music that do not fit. This has been addressed by some people who can address it better than I have, and I think you have a very fine point on a very important point. Thank you very much, Dr. Kunderbach. Thank you. Just as a, a concluding thought, I know it is difficult oftentimes to translate a talk like this into real life, apart from like, you know, ripping your stereo out of your car. But I do want to encourage you about cultivating a good custom of singing within the home, also dancing. And I think it's something very much we have lost. Well, my generation just don't know how to dance. How many don't know how to polka? When I go to a wedding with my wife and we polka together, all the older generation, wow, look at that, because they haven't seen it in so long. So an opportunity to cultivate that and also cultivating some singing within the home. And if you have to start out with the basics, start out with the basics. But it's important to replace what has been put in there with something very positive, and there can be a joy that's brought back to our homes with the tradition of the church and just with good things in general. I leave you with that. We'll see you on Tuesday up at Our Lady of Hope. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.